So we're going to start this episode with what? The clap. <laughs> the phrasing. A clap. <laughs> okay. Um, now that we've, we're back from the bumper, I have a confession to make. Share with us. I drove your car while you weren't here. Oh, no. You knew about this. I sent you photos. Don't pretend. Oh, yes. That's right. Sorry. Was that not that, compelling? That, how do I say this nicely? Fucking Lamborghini <laughs> is a very stressful thing to be around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just feel like it wants you, it wants to die and it wants to take you with it yes. at all times. I think that's a fair characterization. Oh. And, to, you know, you're out of town, it's for a photo shoot, and, like, I just, I had to drive this car, like, through evening rush hour traffic to a place I wasn't familiar with, and then, of course, the headlights are, like, a smushed glowworm squeezed on the front of the car. How do you deal with that thing? Yeah, I know. I, I spent a great deal of time in it yesterday in front of the camera for the rest of the same video shoot last night, <clears throat> and it was stressful, especially when you have to move the car swiftly. Uh, and then we got stuck in the rain, and then the headlights stopped working while I was driving completely? at night. Yes, completely. Can, can you tell the difference? Because um, I genuinely, I say that as a joke, but it, I no, you're one hundred percent can't tell whether they're on. Uh, when it's dark enough on a road with no no streetlights, then yes, and no stars. Can, <laughs> yes, then you can tell that the lights are not functioning. Oh God, that's no fun. Uh, yeah, so. There's that thing one, is there are, diabolical. There are what six switches on the t- on the top, none yes. of which are labeled. Correct. So trying to figure out which one moves. And by the way, then the switch to, to make the, the headlights, headlights have an erection yes. um, is completely on the lower center console. Yes, so I'm like, is true. I remember where this thing is. I know there's a switch. There's something I have to do. Click, click, click. And then the ammeter goes boom down to like minus 40. And I'm like, okay, now I have a fucking dead short. No, it was the... HVAC blower yes. who switches in between the fog lights mm-hmm. and the parking. So I have the order memorized because I spent so much time in the car yesterday. But if I don't spend time in the car, then I forget what they are. I do know the front right one is the radiator fan uh, because that's the one I use the most frequently. That's okay. the manual override for the radiator fan. If you want to turn the radiator fan on before the thermostat does, then use the front right switch. What's the unmarked green LED? Fuel pump. Oh, okay. That's why it's always on. Yes. Okay. Yes. Convenient. Um, and then what else is down there? I think one of them is ignition. I'm not really sure. Like it, when, you're dis- orange, when you're not charging. Oranges. There's two oranges. Light. One of them is fog lights um, or driving lights or whatever the hell they are. One of them is low beam headlights. And this, then the other one is the radiator fan. And then there's a purple one and I don't know what it does. Might be high beams. No, 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 no. no high beams are no, the, no. This is why the government stepped in and mandated that lights have a, a pictogram. And they're required by law. Correct. And that the, the picture, this is one of my favorite esoteric pieces of information right up there with tax horsepower. Um, <laughs> the standardization, I found the Popular Mechanics article from 19, I don't know, 80 or 81, where they're like, the labeling conventions will now be standardized so that we use the same symbol. Because now every time you're in a car and you see the same symbol, you know, it means high beams versus low beams versus rear defroster versus cigarette lighter. Uh, and that is one of the ways that I tell apart a 911 SC what model year it is because 78, 79, I think maybe 80, have the old style ones where we've got a friend we have a f- or a foe. A flying let's windshield anyway. victim. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So they, so you can, if you see the early style, because they're not universalized, and so the cigarette lighter, instead of being a cigarette with smoke coming off of it, which is what we're used to seeing, is like a Zippo lighter with the cap off with a little flame on it. <laughs> cool. uh, and the, all of the symbols are not standardized. And then there's like a one that, you know, people are like, that one looks like toast, and that one looks like bacon, and blah, 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 because everything was not standardized. And then they also used to do like market-specific language variations when they would put words on things, and then they have to change it for every market, which if you're selling a car... That's an Italian car, and you have to sell it in England and Germany, and then you get funny transmi- translations and all that stuff. So anyway, all that stuff was standardized, I think, in 80 or 81 for model, model year globally, I believe. So now the cool. symbol that you see when you're like, oh, that means front defroster because it's got the windshield wiper mm-hmm. angles on it versus rear defroster, which is just a rectangle with the, the bacon marks. And front fog light versus rear fog yeah, light. Yeah, the front fog light points down at the ground. The rear fog light points to the right and points horizontally also instead of being pointed at the ground. Yes, because the front fog the, light is green. Rear fog light is yellow or yellow, orange. Yeah. Right, but then the headlights also point in the same direction. So I always know which is front and rear fog based on which one is pointing in the same direction as the headlights. Because oh. left down is low beam. Left I For fog light, I use, uh, if it's pointed down, it's front. And if it's pointed horizontally, it's rear. So is it this? It's, oh, but it has the squigglies on it for fog. For fog, so, yes. Oh, so you know it's fog and yeah. not headlight. Anyway, but, all but, that stuff was standardized in the, in the early 80s. And it's so helpful. And you realize how helpful it is when you drive a car that you're unfamiliar with. Yes. The thing about that Mira is it started every time right away, ran perfectly. It's a fucking monster. It's fast. It's such an experience. But just the whole getting in the car and having the gas pedal be basically in I where know. the back seat should yes. be. It's such an adjustment, man. Yes. It's really a ergonomic disaster for sure. But yes, I That's now right. know what all the switches do. The, uh, let's see, radiator fan, uh, fog lights, parking lights. That's the front row. Back row is heater blower headlights and nothing the but right rear thing is the, the one that the, 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 yeah the, has nothing behind it so what that is supposed to be is for the interior lights but this car has an interior light that has the switch on the light instead mm. of being on the overhead console so that switch is not mapped to anything you know what it also did so it, i got there I, I got to the photo shoot location and immediately the guys were like this is stressful having this here and um they were apparently had warned them if you were going to do a little bit of damage do a lot of damage and make the car go away yes i said either no damage or burn it to the ground completely but i don't want to be spending years fixing it i either want it to be a total loss or can i say that of course okay i mean you're not you're not committing insurance fraud you're just saying my preference would be let's not spend 10 years fixing the car so i get in and it's on a battery tender and i notice the battery is hooked up and Mm -hmm. i'm like guys this makes me really nervous like this car wants to die and they kind of all laugh at me and we pull back in and second we're done with the shoot ignition's off and i run right over and i unplug the battery and i put the tender back back on it um and i smelled something when i was getting out of the car and that fucking window switch stuck to the ground again i warned them about that yeah they well i put the window down and then so what happens is the, the switch holds all the way down and then the motor sits there and goes and tries yeah. to move the window down until it overheats and then it clicks off and then until the, the fire is a thermocouple until the fire basically or the smoke extinguishes itself and then as soon as it gets cool enough it turns back on again and it must have been doing that for i don't know maybe 30 seconds because i just rolled down the window and i thought this is another one of those times like when it was parked at my house where it tried to burn itself to the ground the car just wants to die I mean, yeah, and that's before you get to the four fires that it had over the decades. Oh, God, yeah, that's, I'm very stressful. But anyway, you were pleasantly out of town while I had to experience your fireball. Yeah, I mean, I spent a bunch of time with it yesterday, and I did some fast over-the-road stuff, which always is a little bit sketchy. But 
It's a good car. You know, and I it mean, rained. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I want to drive that car in the rain. In fact, I can't believe the wipers worked. Um, funny story about the wipers. Uh, while I was using them yesterday, one of them just popped off and was like on top of the cowl. And we're like, oh, here's the wiper. Um, Did so, it add scratches to the... I don't know. I didn't oh. look. Ugh. We popped it back on and went on our merry way. And then the headlights stopped working. Anyway, uh, I, I it is a very high value experience. Otherwise known as a high maintenance experience. Yes. Otherwise, high value, value for the mechanic. Was, right, exactly. I did see a bill on the passenger seat for quite, quite a large amount of money for yes. a starter replacement or something. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, do not buy a Mura unless you're willing to empty Spend bank Spend a Miata NA on it every so often. And so often being weekly. Um, all right. So you no, are, it takes longer than that to fix it. So you can't generate bills at that high rate, fortunately. For every six hours of driving, it requires six weeks of servicing. That's right. And, you know, and one Miata and NA's one Miata. value of, <laughs> of repairs. Uh, that's not even an exaggeration. Right, but I know, I know. We'll all this to say that I was out of town. Yes. Doing what? Uh, I went to the, oh God, I have to get the full name right. This is one of the, the Broadmoor... Um, International Pikes Peak Hill Climb. I may have totally butchered that. All of those words are present in the name. That's like saying, Pikes Peak. What was I the original name Peak. for the Cannonball Run? It was the Cannonball oh yes, the Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Memorial Trophy or yeah. something. You like can that. just say Cannonball, and you could also just say I went to Pikes. Yes, I went, I went to, to Pikes, Pikes Peak. Peak. Okay, yeah, so I went to Pikes Peak. Well, I believe in the media pack they said use the correct name when you're talking about the thing. Uh, I I yeah. I mean, I think that matters more when you're in print. Uh, anyway, Broadmoor is in there. It is a hotel that was owned by the same person who owned the railway that went up to the top. There's a rail. There's a train that goes all the way to the very top. Still? You can, yeah. Wow. And they just spent like $100 million on it. It's very nice. So it's like a Mura uh, oil change. <laughs> um, no, it's Swiss. It works beautifully, oh, which is exactly what you want for a rack railway. If you're going up a very steep grade, you would like a Swiss equipment to yeah. be taking you there because Swiss shit works and they know a thing or two about going up mountains. Uh, all that to say, Broadmoor was involved. <clears throat> there was a guy named Simmons involved, Simmons Beauty Rest. He made his fame in mattresses and then built a hotel and I think a train or something like that. I'm paraphrasing the history. I was reading Wikipedia. I always read Wikipedia. Anyway, uh, about... <laughs> you, don't, you, do, you do know that's not necessarily always true, right? Wikipedia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but like, what kind of sick fuck would go in and sabotage the Wikipedia article about Pike's Peak? I know you were going to read it. <laughs> Me! <laughs> well, then uh, good thing this is ex post facto. Demo. Uh, so, I went to the hill climb. Okay. And observed climbing of hills. And I think i heard from other people I, we we haven't talked about this which is kind of cool because i'm looking forward to hearing about this but i heard there was weather yes holy hell <laughs> so i was like oh it could be kind of cold so i'll like bring a jacket and a hoodie and stuff like that that proved to be wholly inadequate i'm if so that my i made notes while i was there and this entire section of the notes is shit to bring that i didn't bring this time uh because the wet was so fucking cold uh it was you know down in denver at a mere five thousand feet right. uh it was like 75 or 80 degrees do we need to do this in celsius people can figure this out uh it was 25, 25 degrees, degrees celsius. celsius god we're fucking nerds <clears throat> and uh at the top it was 40 well not at the top sorry the the whole thing starts at the, the mountain peak is 11 14 115 
they increased it. No. Do I I have this I have a picture of my Corolla at the top they of that. They changed it. 110. They changed it since then. I, I sincerely doubt that mountain is five feet higher than it used to be. It is. That's I read about this on Wikipedia. The mountain is taller. They changed the sign. The sign up there now says 14115. Get out. Yes, because so it's on. taller. When I went there in 1998, was it actually 14110? Or was it somewhere I mean, in between 14110 and 115? Like 14112 and a half? I don't know. Maybe they rounded to the nearest 110 feet. Did the mountain rise? Yes. Oh. Due to se- seismic activities. Five feet. Well, I mean, if it was 14,112 and now it's 14,113, that's a cr- an increase of one feet, but you round it to the nearest five feet. Anyway, the sign now says 115. Okay. Um, so that's the summit. And it starts at like 11 or something like that, thousand feet. So it does quite a bit of climbing in, you know, nine miles or whatever it is. Uh, and at the base where we were all set up, which is where the... I hesitate to use this word, but pits. I mean, it was effectively a paddock, but it's quite small. The whole thing is very compact. For really? for how much space this uh, event occupies in the mind of an enthusiast, it is really very compact and like kind of grassroots, like sort of low rent. It's not. It's not like going to basically Monaco anything. For an yeah, it's race. not like going to Monaco. It's not like going to the Monterey Historics. It's not like going to most events that have that much. Is it just by headspace def- by by confinement of the space, I mean, it's one road. Yeah, I mean, effectively, not- yeah. And just not that many people participate in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it was really compact. It's difficult, I would say, to go as a spectator also because it's a linear track that's quite long. Mm-hmm. And logistically, I think it's kind of a clusterfuck. Uh, that's your third F-bomb of this episode. that I've. I, the fact that you're counting. And also that I might be winning. Oh, you're winning. I think I said fucking nerds that doesn't count because i just quoted myself i'm at two go on <laughs> linear track long distance uh and so the only way to get up there is on the road that the race is run on and so at five in the morning they shut that road down which means if you want to be up there to see anything anywhere you have to be in position before five wow. which means that everybody is out there we left the hotel at two thirty in the morning and sat in like two hours of traffic. Oh my God. Which was just miserable. I'm sure. I was there with Mobile One. Mobile One brought me out because mm-hmm. Mobile One is now interested for some reason in sponsoring this bullshit. For, uh, for, for some reason. I'm not going to fight you on the calling this bullshit, but for some reason it's because we're the best. We were the number four podcast in America by the time we were, we were on our fifth or seventh episode here. Automotive. Automotive. Yes. <laughs> Details. Is there another category? No, nothing else. Okay. Uh, so I went with a mobile one team and they uh, fortunately had drivers, professional drivers that brought us up in Suburbans. At speed? No, we were sitting in much traffic. But just having someone whose job it was to ensure our safe arrival was really helpful having left at 2.30 in the morning. And they were all, the, the mobile one team was all running around doing marketing and engineering stuff. Uh, so they were all sort of at their wit's end, especially because the Hoonigan car that they were up there supporting, among others, um, blew up. So they had had a stressful week. And it blew up before Quali, right? Yeah, I, I, it blew up before I got there. So, yeah. So it's, that's your plausible deniability. Wasn't that's me. right. I, I wasn't even in the state when it happened. Uh, but they also sponsored Jeff Swart and uh, his, he had a 935, uh, one of the new 935 things that he ran up the hill which was mega, mega cool in like Mobile One. Mobile One, of course, is like this iconic Porsche pairing 
because they have the Pegasus logo, which you always see on like 356s. It's the little flying red horse. And so they have like a long and illustrious pairing with Porsche. And Jeff Swart, of course, is Mr. Porsche. He's also Mr. Pikes Peak. And so that's like an absolute no brainer. He's, I mean, I, when I was a kid, I remember watching him run up like the hill in 964 turbos and 993 turbos. He did this, he had this great quote where he talks about they like basically brought a stock Porsche turbo. And then they like there was no prep to do in the car, so they're like, "What do we do? Like clean it <laughs> before we go up the hill?" That um, didn't Pete uh, Pete Stout from Triple Zero Magazine brought a stock nine eleven turbo and uh, kept third fastest up the hill. I think he year. was not driving if he did bring the car, but definitely there was a Turbo S that was like for at, when it ran, it was the fastest car that had run so far. But subsequently, after that, other cars unseated it. But yeah, it was a Turbo S that was like basically stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so cool. which is like the Porsche turbo thing mm-hmm. you go. And, and in the old days, Pikes Peak used to be unpaved mm-hmm. Pikes Peak. They started paving it mm, early two thousands probably. Uh, and the deal was that they would do 10% of it a year, every year until the whole thing was paved. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was the Sierra club was like, you're dumping all this junk into the Valley and it's causing ecological impact because the other 364 or I don't know, what is it? 350. 58 days of the year when it's not a hill climb it's just like random ass tourists in corollas going up to the peak to take photos of their car it was dirt when i drove up yeah so that's no longer the case and of course the legendary like for me the most iconic thing probably of pike's peak is the weather no no the the most iconic like exercising of use of pike's peak capturing a pike's peak in media like what do you think is the most iconic representation of pike's peak in media form you're going to laugh at me, but I'm going to say it was that ridiculous Ken Block video last couple of years ago when he basically oh. put one wheel over the edge. Uh, for me, it is Climb Dance. Ari Vatanen, Peugeot, it was uh, made in like 1989 yep. where he's just hauling ass. And it's like cinematographically, mm-hmm. wow, first try, shot. Um, uh, and it's just really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Climb Dance. And it's like this nominally a Peugeot 405 but it's I think a Peugeot 405 in the same sense that a 205 turbo 16 is a 205 right. like I don't think there's anything besides the lights that are from a 405 maybe the engine block uh but that to me was always like the defining that or like Michel Mouton going up in the Audis because then she they made like a special Audi Pikes Peak car in the late mid 80s probably first time she went she didn't quite make the record and then she set the all-time record at that point in the Pikes Peak or Quattro so like for me, it's like 80s stuff of dirt. And mm-hmm. so when they went fully paved, I was like, yeah. but uh, it's still very epic, especially when it's moist. Mm-hmm. And it has also introduced an entire group of cars that go up that would not previously, because you always needed to make accommodations for, especially when it was mixed, tarmacs, tarmac versus unpaved, which is always the rally trade-off. Uh, and now that it's fully paved, you start sending up these like sort of specialized cars because they used to always be open wheel single seater cars like in the early days. Uh, so that was all very interesting to see. But yeah, I've, all that to say that I free, froze my ass off uh, and made a long list of things that I should bring, including long should underwear. You go back? I my life was saved by uh, hot hands, pot hand warmers wow. that I got from one of the Mobile One guys. So this is summer. It's I know July. it was it was quite literally the like end of June and it was 40 degrees at 11,000 feet and when I went, rode the train the day before to the top it was like yeah I was probably in the 30s like maybe low 30s I went there in, the, the one time I was there was in August 
and it was 90s at the bottom of the hill and it, it snowed and uh, hailed when we got to the top. Yes, we got stuck it there snowed. for an hour. Oh, and then, yeah, due to weather. Due to weather and then had to basically slid the whole way down the hill. It was horrifying hmm. and genuinely scary. Wow. Uh, also cool because I survived it. But I've heard plenty of stories of, um, you know, my Anthony, my director, he was up there once um, and they all got stuck in the building for the visitor hours. center. Yes. Yeah. Due to a freak massive freak storm, of freak storm at some innocuous seeming mm-hmm. time of year. Yeah. And somebody got struck by lightning. It's just, I hate when, when that happens. Yeah, it's so annoying. I try to leave my blasphemies from when I'm not standing in the God, <laughs> we get, we have a retur- recurring uh, trope of talking about getting struck by lightning. Well, look at us <laughs> two episodes ago. I think we did that. Uh, what, that was not the entire, oh, you, did you say that you had driven some exciting Honda products? I did, but I want to hear more about your bike speed. I did. Oh, okay. Fine. This is pretty quick. I did finally drive the Civic Si. So I think it was last. You only episode. had to wait two episodes. Yeah, two episodes ago. Or one episode. Um, whatever. I don't know. Whatever. Whenever one this episode. comes out, at some point in the last couple of weeks, I drove back to back an uh, Integra A A spec manual, and I finally got in the Civic Type R. Uh, Civic Si. Mm-hmm. And they, those are functionally the same car, same engine, same powertrain, same Right, dips, and you were lamenting the fact that one costs so much more than the other one because you weren't getting much more in exchange. Right. And you were very enthusiastic to drive the SI. But it's really an interesting exercise because the the way I feel about the Integra is the Integra is a great car but an unbuyable product. I think I said that yes. in the episode, right? Um, SI really proves this. It's very interesting because I would actually, on balance, definitely, without question, choose the Acura. So the Acura's interior is nicer. It doesn't look quite as aesthetically pleasing to me, but the materials are nicer and the overall presentation is nicer. And my favorite thing about the Integra was the ridiculous throttle calibration. Mm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the engine mounts felt stiffer. I have a, a, a bunch of emails that I have yet to send to Honda to ask about this, but it almost seems like the engine mounts are stiffer in the Acura. You, the, so you, you have it, more presence of the motor exactly. and more snappiness and you, more character and texture. Right. And definitely throttle calibration mapping is different. Um, where the Civic is a little bit lazier. Um, uh, which was a previous complaint about the last generation. SI. With some reg, rev hang. Mm. Just not as interactive Snappy. as the uh, Integra, Integra was. Ultimately, it's the same car. But um, I actually really liked the Integra better. Um, I just don't know if it's really worth 7,000 bucks. But what I realized was when I was looking through the Civic SI's material, uh, I was looking, they have like 20, 30 slide presentation. And they mentioned about 75 times that this, like every other SI, is only available in a manual transmission. So like SI brand available with manual transmission only for the last 30 years. And I realized what happened. They did the Integra with the CVT because they weren't willing to do a Civic SI with the CVT. So they have a new trim level called the EX Turbo that sort of takes over that. But I think the real reason that Honda chose to do the Integra was so that they could have a CVT and capture those buyers. And that explains why the Civic Civic oh, SI that's why it's so much cheaper. and the CVT Integra are the same price or close to the same price. Oh uh, God, if you're not, if you're not, I those mean, are cars are not normally sold side by side in like some dealers sell Honda and Acura. I don't think so. I think they're, no, all, they're, I, I think separate. they're all separate. So that's odd because if you have someone who's like, I really like this car, but I don't know what the left pedal is and I'm not interested in using it. Then you're like, oh, yes, we have to send you to this other dealer. Hey, at least it's a town. sale. The, the part of it that's so unusual is that they're sacrificing the success of one of the potential products so that they can have the other. I mean, what the way I see it is. Well, to preserve the purity of the brand, which right. is weird and admirable it's admirable except that it's you know look gti gained a D- dsg in mark 5 and didn't hurt the reputation of that car 
And okay, well, that's DSG because is, it's not a CVT. CVT. <laughs> right. I mean, that's uh, what it comes down to. If that was a dual clutch, uh, then I think they could have gotten away with it. Correct. Um, yes. But, you know, WRX did this last generation. They added a CVT and no one noticed. Thank God. No, also no one bought it, which is really more important. Um, but I just thought that was so interesting when I started realizing them, like, oh my God, this is what they're doing. They, they did the Integra solely so that they can sell a Civic SI with a CVT to get those additional sales. And the, but then why did they make a manual? I mean, yeah, cause the Integra they had to, to make a manual. manual Integra and, but that's the sacrificial lamb. Do it. Just they fascinating like contented it in a way or something or equipped it in a way that made it more expensive so that there was differentiation between the Integra and the SI. Okay, but you said you liked the Integra more, but maybe not $7,000 more. But what did you like better besides the throttle calibration and the like presence of the motor the, in the car? The, honestly, the shifter felt better. This, this is the weird part is that, you know, I'm talking about such subtle differences like the motor mounts and the throttle calibration and the shifter feel. I don't know if those are different parts. It could be just a variation between two car cars. Car. But the, the shifter and the Integra was definitely better than the shifter and the SI. Was the SI like a hardly ridden pr- press Other way car? around. The Integra had 5,000 miles on it. The Civic only had like 800. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just could be that it will get better. Um, the, the Integra has a stability off button um, that turns it to sport mode but it still lets you do huge burnouts and all kinds of other terrible things civic says stability fully control uh, fully off but it's not i mean there's a little weird subtle differences between the two cars but uh the the only huge substantive differences are number one the els sound system in the integra is genuinely awesome far better than i think it was bose in the in the civic and um the hatchback I mean, there's a huge trunk. There's not a lot of back seat room in the Integra because the, the roof kind of slopes down, so there's not a lot of headroom, mm-hmm. um, but much more usable cargo. But the Civic's better looking. Mm. So, um, That's a good time to be alive, mm-hmm. to have this conversation. I mean, not a bad not a bad choice to have. I would buy an Integra and try to get the price down to <laughs> closer to Civic, and then I think it makes a, a great deal. Um, so Mobile One brought you to... Wait, wait, wait. Honda product conclusion. Didn't you say you also drove a DC2 Type R Integra? My favorite sound effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your favorite car too? No. Um, that engine is berserk. So is it sim- it's very similar. Is it the same engine that you experienced in that uh, Lotus? No, the Lotus was a K20A5, which is a two liter. This, was a, this is a B18C hold on k20a and this is a b18c5 so it's a earlier series engine it's a 1.8 liter 9,000 rpm limiter all right i'm going to have to insert put the insert here this was uh acceleration run ready now it's too bad you can't hear it they just heard it but you can't hear it um sounds absolutely glorious makes power everywhere um geared way too long way too long 45 mile an hour first and then what cars ever do you interact with that aren't geared too long? Chrysler, estimation. Pacifica, Dodge. Chrysler Pacifica is an eight-speed. It's really good. Uh, Dodge Grand Caravan, <laughs> geared stupid short. Um, in, Integra, 50-something mile an hour second gear. Plenty of them. But it was just, it's just, you know, you're going to hit 9,000 RPM twice and then never be able to do it in third. And third gets you to almost 100 miles an hour. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a great-looking car. It's a, it drives very well in that 90s sort of overboosted steering kind of way. Like mm-hmm. Honda just never had great steering. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that car is really about the motor. And this one, I could not believe Cassie? how... Cassie? 
well, I was going to say, I couldn't believe how stiff it was. Uh, one of the guys, the guy who delivered the car was like, I don't think they're normally like this. This car didn't used to be this way. I think the dampers have seized up because um, it was genuinely jittery and skid- skittish over bumps. Uh, um, that ruins the experience. It also made it tail happy and assy and really, really Yeah, but suddenly. Sudden, yeah. Um, so I got out of it and I said to, to Anthony, my director, I'm like, this is the type of car that would call out kids like you who've never driven front wheel drive cars because it'll snap out sideways and your intuition will be to get off the gas and then you're hitting a tree. And this is, the car turned 6,000 miles while I was driving it. This is like an absolute mm. perfect museum piece. Um, you want a 50,000 mile one that's had all the maintenance done in the last but year But I never felt anything so massless in my life. Like it just felt, it changed directions like it weighed nothing. Just spectacular. More so than like an Elise? Way more so than an Elise. But that could be partially because the dampers were half seized. So they were not, there was no body motion at all. Yeah. I mean, it was like, okay, it's skittish, it's skittish, it's skittish. And then I took it on this road and did a bunch of really quick switchbacks. Couldn't. Where were you driving it? Uh, down in near uh, Willow Springs, mm. which is the giveaway that we definitely didn't use it in an episode of Ultimate Drag Race Replay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. It's awesome. Um, can't wait. Can't wait for that video to come out. Interesting. It's going to be a little while because we have a backlog. But um, yeah, cool, cool, cool car. I love when you when you meet your, if you've chosen your heroes properly, it's wonderful an icon. to meet them. Meet it's an nice icon. To, yeah, it's nice to, I mean, the, the smell of that thing, like, you know, 90s, 80s and 90s Hondas are just, they smell amazing. They just have this great feel to all the switch gear. I just, I love them. Um, that was really cool. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I will continue to pine after one. Hmm. You've never driven one? No. Oh, okay. I think we talked about this. I have very little Honda experience. All right. Well, you, should, you should drive one. See? It only took me 20 years. 25 years to drive one. You're next. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, yes. This was all been a long tangent. Yes, because I want to know, you talked to engineers from Mobile One, and this oil yes. is like... The black magic discussion. They're like, I just want to hang out with an oil engineer for five minutes. Yeah, so uh, this guy was great. He runs their motorsport program. Mm-hmm. And I we just sort of wandered around the paddock and shot the shit for a while. And I learned a lot of stuff. It was very interesting. You know, let's see where to start. I learned, so he, previously he was in testing, vehicle testing. Mm-hmm. And so he had some interesting stories about what they do to test cars. The, fir- the first question, not just hand the keys to me. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, so we'll do basically the equivalent of running from Maine to Florida and back three times at 130 miles an hour while a quart and a half low. Oh. And I was like, wow. In what particular car? Just sort of anything? Like just if they're, I don't know. Did, so when, this was like in the days when they were powered, like testing particular vehicles and stuff like that. Because people are always like, well, should I run this or that? And we're like, well, we got, you know, they'll do dyno testing. Mm-hmm for hundreds of thousands of miles, you know, half a million or a million miles of, of like simulated mileage accumulation rig, or what was it? Mileage accumulation dyno, mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they'll put uh, basically half a million miles on something and then they'll be like, no, this is how the oil breaks down. Oftentimes also they're trying to, to run basically what Blackstone does, but internally, mm-hmm. which is to do analysis on different types of wear metals and be like, well, we're seeing this or we're not seeing this or like, you know, if they have fleet customers, because they apparently, I didn't know this, Mobile One also does stuff for marine engines and truck fleets, like large fleets of trucks and stuff like that. And so they'll be like, we're going to try and increase our oil change interval by 5,000 miles. And they'll be like, okay, send us your sample mm-hmm. at 25,000 miles. We'll tell you what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, eh, it seems, everything seems five. fine. Go another 5,000. Right. 
uh, and see and then send us the stuff and we'll keep telling you. And so they'll work with their fleet customers to do what, you know, private individuals can do with with uh, Blackstone, Blackstone. Yeah. to sort of get a sense of the health of the motor and the health of the oil and all that stuff. That's so like so cool. that was super interesting and just like learning what goes into oil, um, you know, base oil and then all the stuff that they add in. Let's see, what are all the components? You should, you probably know some of this stuff. Detergents, well, that's, for, right? Uh, anti-foaming agents, uh, anti viscosity modifiers, vo- viscosity and friction modifiers, uh, and um, I mean sh- the, the whole black magic for oil is that typically as a fluid gets warmer, it gets thinner, and that what the viscosity modifiers are there to do is to do the opposite, right? You want the wa- the oil to thicken up. You want it to be thinner when it's cool. Yes, and that's what multigrade right. effectively does. And so I was like, why do these guys run 50? This is one of the questions I always wanted to ask an oil engineer. Why do these guys in vintage race cars run 50, straight 50 weight? And he was like... Because their tolerances are bigger? Well, that's why you run 50 versus like 40 or 30. Mm-hmm. But why do, do they not run a multigrade oil in vintage racing mm-hmm. applications? Because they don't need like, I mean... He was like, you you kind of do want to run a multi-grade in all situations, honestly, because when you're doing a cold start, you would like to have lower viscosity at that situation. So there isn't really any benefit to running straight 50 weight. It's more a reflection of the narrow use case for a vehicle like that, which is that it's going to be run on a warmish day in a sort of prescribed fashion, and the oil is going to be changed relatively quickly and so there's no real benefit to run straight 50 weight is effectively what I learned from that question. Uh, it's like just a sort of reflection of the fact that you don't need behavior that's different in different right. ambient temperatures because you're not going to run it in a bunch of temperature ranges. So I think I, I don't I don't think most of my friends know the, what the W and the two numbers mean. Right. So you like a 15 W 50, uh, which was the mobile one that I was at. So I'm, uh, mobile one didn't didn't take me to. Colorado because I was too busy filming um, but I've run mobile 115 w50 in, in all my old cars for a long time because I wanted a 50 weight yes um, and that uh, is consistent thicker. with his recommendation right good except now they have a 5w50 which I find harder to get but the 5w50 um, so basically the, the the number before the W is cold weather and that I believe is tested at zero C so 32 degrees Fahrenheit um, and that's how thick the oil is when cold at freezing mm-hmm. temperature. And then the second number is how uh, how hot it is when warm, probably like 100 C. Don't don't quote me, quote me on these numbers, whatever, uh, what the actual temperatures are. But I want as thin as possible to help with cranking and give as much protection as quickly as possible post Correct. start. Yes. And then in my case, my older engines, thick enough that when they run very hot, they're not so thin that I start to lose oil pressure. Correct. And like my VWs run at 110, 15, 120 C, which is way hotter than most like American engines do. So I really want thick oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've loved that I can get 5W50 because I have the best of both worlds. On yep. that. Yes. Um, and old cars generally prefer a heavier weight oil because the tolerances are greater. Uh, and so you want basically a cushion of oil and other oil to be contacting each other instead of metal. And if the oil is right. too thin, it's not going to do that. Right. And, and it's so crazy to look at some of these new modern cars that are 0W20 or 0W, I think I saw 010 recently, which is crazy. It terrifies but, me. Well, but they're doing no, it No, I know that's because, right? and, and metallurgically, like, we now have the technology. 
I don't know I'm, if I buy that. Really? I think it's a compromise. Well, we do have the technology, but the question is, would one of those engines last longer with a 0W50, for example, or 0W40? And the answer is probably yes. But some engineer somewhere decided, well, it's good enough. It'll last 200,000 miles on 0W20. And that's all we need it to, to do. Plus, we'll get another mile per gallon out of it because thinner oil is easier to pump and therefore less losses. And so the, it's an efficiency benefit to, to running a thin oil, but it's a longevity benefit to running a thicker oil. And so it's a compromise. Like everything in cars is a compromise. Mm. But I would, I'm not running 0W10 in anything. Yeah. Next is going to be 0W0. Yeah. And by the way, those are those two numbers are not related. A, 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 like a 10W30 or 30W30, if there was such a thing, would actually have different viscosities. It's a it's an index or for cold versus right. warm behavior. Um, but it's pretty cool. I mean, you take a like a 15 or 2050 conventional oil and try to pour that out when it's 30 degrees, and it just comes up as like a syrup. toothpaste syrup. And you're like, how is that supposed to be pumped around the engine? Versus like a zero W synthetic would just bloop, pour, pour right out. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. I Normally when I'm doing oil changes on my old cars, it's fif- something that's 50 in the second position. So it's like I have to leave them all hanging out and draining mm-hmm. so that they can all be empty because there's so much fluid left inside of the jug afterwards. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that was an in- illuminating uh, topic of conversation. Um, what else? I made some notes. We I love the whole those. idea that I, I contacted a bunch of oil engineers years ago about warming up oil. And I called a, a bunch of big sort of names at big car companies, these guys who we worship, um, who make amazing cars. And I'm like, at what oil temperature do you start ragging on your car? Oh, yes. The Mercedes engineers so are just like, yeah, go for it. Uh, the Porsche was, was 40C. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. The Porsche guys consider it fully warmed up at 40 Celsius. Excuse me. And then um, the GM guys were like, as soon as the gauge moves on the, the water, temp? water temp, go for it. They don't give a shit. Um, it's pretty amazing to see that. But then my big question was to an oil and a lubricity engineer was how much better is oil at lubricating when it's cold versus warm? And the difference is actually not there. Huh. I never, and for the last 25 years, I won't rev a car out and I won't give it a lot of throttle until it hits 80 C and every single engineer has told me I'm wasting all that time on warm up. As soon as there's a temperature in the oil kind of go for it, you can sort of gradually get closer and closer to full throttle and redline. But once you're over 40, 50, 60 Celsius, the oil is warm enough. The question is, are the pistons fully expanded? Are the valves fully expanded? Cause you know, a valve could get stuck in its seat. If a valve gets expands too quickly, It'll get stuck in the seat or pistons can expand at different rates in the block. So you do kind of want to progressive progressively warm things up. But I didn't realize that cold oil doesn't lubricate any less well than hot oil. Yeah, it's just um, you're not harming it by being progressive. No, it's just a waste of time. I spend three quarters of the miles that I drive in warm up. Seriously. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, my favorite things about an electric car. I lay tire out of my driveway. Where the other cars, I start them, I let them run for, you know, 20 seconds as I close the garage door and I just sort of gradually fade in until I have ADC oil temp. I never went more than one third throttle or 3000 RPM, Hmm. except for the Honda B because then. Yeah, you wouldn't be anywhere. Wouldn't make it out down my driveway. (laughs) (laughs) Or down the hill that you live on top of. Fifth gear, 3000 RPM is still three miles an hour. Yes, that is 100% correct. Uh, Oh, we talked about zinc. Did we talk about zinc? Sorry, the engineer and I talked oh, about zinc, okay. high zinc content. So that's the, I tend to put ZDDP 
the P additive additive in, in the older cars with flat tappets as the uh, yeah. Michiganders would say. Yeah, which is good practice. Okay. So functionally zinc is intended to um, be sacrificial effectively instead of uh, the metal of the engine you're running using the zinc to be in contact with other zinc. And this is in shear, right? This is one part smearing Probably. against another one. I think so, yes. Uh, and zinc content is now capped by manufacturers seeking to extend the length of catalyst light, uh, service life of catalysts. Huh. And so that's why zinc content is now capped, I think, by OEMs. I think he said 800 parts per million. Uh, for any OEM recommended oil, it won't be more than 800. Uh, but their 1550, he was telling me, does, is not subject to that because it's not an OE-specified oil in oh. any, uh, in any, by o, any o, OEM. Huh. So the 1550, he was saying, has more zinc content than that. He said it, I think it was like 14 or 1500 ppm zinc. What's, what is the recommendation for like a flat pat, a flat tappet non-catalytic car? This is why I have to give you his business card. Yeah, I want to talk to this dude. But I think you want to be in the like mid-1000s probably. Hmm. So at least. Yeah. So uh, he was saying that, yeah, because it's not an OEM oil, we can put more zinc in that product. I bet 5W50 is the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody, any OEM is recommending a 50 weight. Not not with fuel economy standards that we have now. Yeah. Um, you know, you want, I think how thick those oils are when they're cold. I know. And it's really alarming. That, and right. then you have to think about the size of the gaps inside of the motor that are existing. There's pistons hanging mm -hmm. around, slapping around, back and forth, bouncing off the walls of the cylinders. That's how I imagine it with those tolerances. Yeah, the old stuff, for sure. Yes, for sure. I think there was a huge explosion outside. Well, you know. July. July 5th. <laughs> Leftover fireworks. Sorry if you guys hear any background noise. We have the windows open and uh, because Paolo, who is not in the room He's conspicuously us, absent today. Conspicuously COVID-y. Yes. Yeah. Um, let's see if there's anything else we want to highlight. Oh, I also asked about sort of racing applications versus commercial applications for oils and what they'll sell to consumers. Mm -hmm. That was very interesting also because uh, philosophically, I think racing oil, he's like, think about racing oil like you would think about racing tires. High performance for a narrow band. Mm -hmm. Very specified use case. And then you're going to do an oil change immediately after the event, or you should, mm -hmm. you know, and you're going to run it in these very specific conditions. And the oil is optimized for that. And it's not optimized for stuff like fuel economy or cold, cold startup starts. or right. lasting 5,000 miles between oil changes or 15,000 miles between oil changes and all this stuff. And so he said, you know, racing oil will perform very high at a very certain use case for a shorter period, for of, a time. Shorter period of time. Uh, and so that's kind of this. And I said, how much of trickle down? He said, absolutely. There's trickle down between the stuff we learned in competition. He said, also, what we will do is bespoke blends mm -hmm. for certain teams where teams will be like, you know, this is like a thing for top fuel dragsters. Mm -hmm. I am absolutely mind boggled about top fuel dragsters. I watched a video on YouTube about top fuel dragsters. and I was shocked by some of the stuff the motors do. Like they'll do these, this, the entire service life of, life of a, a top fuel dragster engine between rebuilds is like 30 seconds. Yeah of use, mm -hmm. of which four seconds of that, three seconds of that is racing. Yeah. Uh, and then there's like 30 seconds of warm up, and then do an oil change. Then So the engine gets two, it gets an oil change every 30 every seconds. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, gets used once or twice. Like, absolutely mind-blowing. And then they and he rebuild said, oh, it in 10 minutes. That's the other crazy thing. Yeah, and uh, 
because they are just adding fuel every damn place they possibly can because that's the limitation for power in those things you know they put power they put fuel in before the supercharger they put it in after the supercharger they put it in the supercharger they put it in the cylinders like they're just always putting fuel in he said like they, they'll get like 30 or 40 percent dilution fuel dilution of the oil during, during that time um but uh th this was an aside Oh, so special blends that they will develop for certain competition teams mm. that are sort of like sponsored by them or that are running a lot of stuff. Well, they'll be like, yeah, we like can get a few extra horsepower doing this or that. And based on the blend of all the ingredients of stuff that goes in the oil and, you know, that's all sort of proprietary. And so they have to like keep a fairly short leash on those batches of oil. And they have like a no analysis agreement with the teams that run the stuff. Uh and so it's like all very secretive and proprietary. Do they add like, fuel to the oil too, so then <laughs> so that has the increased additional, <laughs> additional I mean, combustion. Yeah, so that wow. was uh, that was quite informative. Also, uh, cool. that they'll do sort of these custom blends. And I, and I also asked the question. I said, "Why Mobile One versus any other supplier?" Mm. Uh, from your perspective, and he said, "Size, size, and budget. We can do testing and just develop stuff. It's kind of like Michelin." I learned recently that Michelin apparently has more than, I think it was like 4x the development budget of the next uh, closest tire competitor. Oh my God. Well, that um, explains that. Why their tires are so damn yeah. good, right? They just are investigating he heavily on, you know, compounds and testing and chemistry and just all this crazy shit. And that's why their product is so good. And he's saying Mobile One, you know, all the, that maybe there's a handful of maybe two or three big oil companies that can sort of test and develop and engineer their product to, a standard that is high enough to sort of differentiate huh. uh, and so it depends on what you're using it for if it's a high performance application then that kind of stuff makes a difference you know if you're running around and do they still make the chevy malibu and something like that and it's a rental car like hey but still i mean there could be substantive differences and I mean, do you want to wear your engine out or not i, I mean, mean i don't I, think most people which brings me to the, the question did you ask the golden question how often he changes his oil in his personal cars um he said uh, I don't remember if I did or not, actually. I, we sort of like peripherally asked, we alluded to that question because he said it's like the most common question. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think we, I didn't ask it, but he sort of brought it up. And then we, but he offered it more as an example of a common question. So that I didn't want to ask it afterwards because yeah. he was like, oh, this is the like new question. Like, don't ask me this new question. Um, I think like sort of analysis was kind of the key, which is like you look at it regularly the other thing he said is I, like i was asking about like should you really change it once a year or not and he said like it depends on whether the car has been used or not what you're concerned about is like contamination and like corrosion and moisture if the car sits a lot that's potentially quite problematic but he also said that synthetic oils are generally pretty good and that the additive pack additive package i guess is what they call of all the stuff mm -hmm. that they put in that's not the base oil which accounts for i think the base oil is 85 percent of the motor oil and the rest of it is detergents and friction modifiers and uh quote unquote the additive package yes all that stuff so. there's like five or six different things that get added in different proportions that sort of differentiate the the, the products uh from each other anyway uh, i think so he was saying that like modern synthetic oils are fairly good about that kind of stuff mm -hmm. generally 
Uh, but yeah, if you have like moisture hanging out in your motor, that's like quite problematic. You definitely don't want moisture. Yeah, for example, I think people often do the wrong thing. They change the oil in the spring before they start driving the car, and that's always the wrong thing. You want to change it in the fall if, if before you store person, it, right? Because you don't want it that open. any water or gasoline or anything else yeah. in there that can act as a detergent, and then or, or as a corrosive agent. Inside exactly, the corrosive agent. Right. Really so you the, always do an oil change before you store the car, not before you start redriving it again, which is kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious. I love sending oil out to labs and just mm-hmm. to look at it. It's also occasionally pretty scary what comes back. Yeah, you're like, um, well, here go my uh, whatever's bronze in my motor is definitely failing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. But I mean, the, the hardest part is not overreacting when you see a lot of something in there and just waiting to see the trend. Yeah, I had a ton of, I had a pretty bad report on, on my E30, uh, my wagon. When I came back and it was a new motor that was built and it, I think it had like 5,000 miles on it. And we did that motor trend video where Randy lapped it, whatever. And it's an Etta that was originally made to rev to 5,000 and here it is revving to 6,900. I, I know quite a, quite a lot of, a lot of over revs. Um, and that, and there was just a lot of aluminum, which is piston like, you know, okay, now we have piston slap and it took three oil changes later. That's now gone down to a normal level. Is that a break in thing? I think it was just a track use thing on an engine that was never designed to spin that high. Mm. And my guess is that if we pulled the pistons out, you'd see probably some scoring on the cylinder walls or some scoring on the side of the pistons uh, from just them rocking, from not having been designed to rev that high. Um, and it just took a couple oil changes to get all the residual crap out of there. Um, but but at least you're not was, incrementally wearing it any beyond that one day of use. Yeah, I was scared shitless when I saw it. I mean, you know, I, you know I'm not nice to that engine. I mean, it's an M20. They last kind of forever. Um, but I was like, oh, maybe I should be nice. But no, it's fine. Even all the rallies and stuff that we've done since, it's all fine. It's just not extended six to 70,000 RPM track use. Track, is, track use is brutal. Yeah. The other thing that I sort of interpreted was that not a bad idea to do a break in oil change early in the car's life. Did he talk um, about, about not directly? Mm-hmm. But my, what I implied, inferred from that, is there's some environmental concerns about oil changing every damn car in the world at 600 miles, yeah. uh, and that if it were my car, I would probably still do it, which yeah, I did. Of course. Oh, for me too. For I mean, when I, I bought the the GT3 new, even my mom's car, I bought my mom Golf, hundred miles first oil change, hundred hundred miles first oil change, thousand miles second one. Oh. Those engines, I don't believe, are run on a dyno uh, from the factory before they're started, um, or not. They're not broken in, and so hundred miles, I I dumped it, and I did not send it to Blackstone, but I've done that in the past where there is a huge amount of stuff in that oil after hundred miles, and any yeah. motor that I've ever built, twenty miles. At the most. I mean, you kind of run it, do just a, a quick run, let it warm up, dump it, and then fresh oil. And of course, it's terrible for the environment. Obviously, I'm not dumping it down the drain. I'm recycling <laughs> it. But it's still terrible for, for the environment. Yeah, if everyone were to do that, if that were the manufacturer's recommendation, right. because it used to be. I mean, yeah. it used to be a 600-mile service. And I, like for motorcycles, for old Porsches, like I've, you, the service book has the 600-mile little window where right. you're supposed to do an oil change yeah, thousand kilometers and i yeah six six twenty miles and so i did that with the gt3 because the gt3's first requested oil change is something absurdly long like maybe it was fifteen thousand or something like oh, that yeah no and no, no. i mean i did this as i did this for this reason but also because i wanted to the car's first oil change to be in europe and i did european delivery with the car so i made a service appointment in bologna so that i could get the, the stamp from the dealer in italy because I'm because you're mega cool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I am, uh, yes, the, the coolest dude <laughs> for sure. 
Uh, so yeah, that I, I that, so I think I will continue to do that if I ever buy a new car or build new motors. Is Always. is an early oil change? I mean, it's just such an easy thing to do to prevent. Think about the amount. You don't of want wear. that shit circulating around. You know, right. in theory, it should be captured by the oil filter. Oil filter, but the oil filter can only capture down to a certain size. Anything below the pores of the, of the filter is going to get be circulating around the engine. It just becomes sandpaper embedded in the oil. Yeah, I just it's a it's a very cheap, inexpensive way to make sure that anything that's left in that casting or if there's sand from blasting anything is just get it out of there fast. Yep. Um, and then do another change after that. But hopefully I won't be building any more motors anytime soon. <laughs> right. I mean, yes, undoubtedly. It's been it's been a couple of years. I haven't built anything recently. Yeah, so let's see. So that was the oil conversation. Then uh, the the deal with the competition at uh, at Pikes Peak is effectively these guys just run up the hill as fast as they can. It was also like the weather was really poor, no visibility. I mean, these guys are turning out these insane times when you can't see shit and it's moist and cold and they're on like competition tires and like they have tire warmers on, but then you go out there and it's like 40 degrees ambient and wet. You're like, how much is that going to do? Like it just... The whole thing gave me like the heebie-jeebies. I was like, "My God, I'm so glad I'm not these guys." Heebie-jeebies. Heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I'm not these guys up here trying to set these times. And like, you know, people have offs and stuff. But you've yeah. seen the situation with the topography up there, especially above the tree line, where there's no trees to catch you if you leave mm-hmm. the pavement. There's like a pretty hairy. Yeah. It's really epic. It's it, generally speaking, I think that that type of competition, like I had this sort of existential moment where I'm standing out there and it's freezing, and I got up at two in the morning. And I'm like, what am I doing out here? What are these people doing out here who are driving up here doing this? It's like humans are just like, that seems hard. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. And we just we always do this, and I don't really know why humans do that. Like, why do we climb Mount Everest? Why do we go to the moon? Why did we go to the bottom of the of uh, the Marianas Trench. Uh, why did people decide that to do 24 hours of endurance racing at Le Mans? And I mean, this was the 100th running of Pikes Peak and they started doing it in 1916, but they, I think 16, but they skipped a few years because of world wars. But you're just like, whose idea was this to like do this? Like I just had this really like, what the fuck? And all these people are sitting here in ponchos, freezing in folding chairs, like, there's just this like esprit de corps of humans doing shit where you're like i don't get humans like this is really cool (laughs) and i'm glad that it exists and just we have this tendency to see something that looks really really hard and be like i'm gonna do that so here's a good it's that's a really good question my question is do you think without sponsorship and advertising possibilities these types of events would still happen i mean because it, it, it serves yeah, there'd be like Porsche, these... for example well to say you know we we put somebody in we put a bunch of stickers on a production car send it up the hill and it beat beat the shit out of everything there's a huge marketing value of that for sure without that do you think people would still do it mm-hmm. yeah it'd be like these random ass dudes with however many teeth they happen to have and whatever they <laughs> car they have and just turning up and being like yeah we go up the hill as fast as we can every year i mean it's because the, we do like right why would you not? Same reason, you know, I think there's a Virginia Hill, a Virginia City, City Hill yeah. climb. I mean, that doesn't, I don't think it's a sponsorship event. Of course, we, we'd love to challenge ourselves. We'd love yes. to break shit. And have um, other people be trying to do it and be like, I'm better than you. Yeah. Like, right. be looking at the guy next to you and be like, I did a better job. There's just this, like, I don't know, human. And, and I don't, I think these are probably outliers. Like, the vast majority of people are like, you know, I would like to be on my sofa 
having a beer. Right. Uh, and then there are these like weird humans who go to the Olympics, right. you know, or whatever it is, like a fringe extreme the activity. It, the Olympics isn't usually killing people. I mean, you know, something like Pikes Peak is a really genuinely dangerous thing. I mean, you know. And it's like really gnarly. Like I, <laughs> I rode the train to the top where it was 14,000 feet. And I was like, man, I'm fucking out of shape. Like just the altitude was really getting to me. And like the drivers have like onboard oxygen and will mm-hmm. be like breathing oxygen because it's. Like, you are really fucking out to lunch out there. Like, I was, like, confused, and then I came down, and I had a headache the rest of the day, and I was like, God, I'm just a worthless piece of shit human. But (laughs) it's, like, a a really demanding environment. And, like, atmospheric engines lose power tremendously because there's no air for them to breathe up there. And Corolla couldn't pull second gear. I had to go down at first. Matted. 3,500, if I remember correctly, 3,500 RPM in first was all it would do up the hill by the time you got to the top. Yeah. And, you know, you think, oh, this car's fucking stupid, whatever, this stupid shit. And you got to stand up when you get out of the car and you're like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's really an intense environment. That was also that this experience for sure highlighted the intensity of like the demands. And like you lose um, cognitive ability, you lose judgment, hypoxia effectively mm-hmm. at, at those elevations. And so to be trying to drive a car at the limit when you like can't Can't even remember like you know what your name is exactly it was it it's really and that's why i guess they put them on oxygen and like that's not overkill at all i mean i definitely didn't feel like i was this is when i if if i ever have too much to drink anyone will always know because i will announce that i'm at the point where i'm no longer safe to operate a motor vehicle and i felt that way (laughs) at fourteen thousand feet without drinking anything uh they are also famous this isn't a complete aside for high altitude donuts, which they fry up there, and reportedly, according to Wikipedia, they like collapse. If you bring them down, they don't collapse. I, I saved one and brought it down to. to f- this is why you can't believe what you read on Wikipedia. I know, I know. Well, it's like part of urban lore or whatever that the the high altitude donuts collapse. That was a good one. Um, the high altitude donuts collapse. I mean, I didn't take it fully down to sea level, so maybe that's true, but I took it down at least five or 6,000 feet from 14... No, I'd, probably from 14 to 7,000 feet. No, 6,000 feet. That's a lot. I went from 14 to 6, and, and the donut, donut did not t- collapse. Yeah, well, then I'm calling bullshit. But it tasted the same. It was good. Okay. I, so, so, yeah, I had the... So, so yeah, I got to ride the train, got to have a donut... And got the uh, business card of a of a of a mobile one oil nerd yes. who we get to call in the future. Yes. I have many questions. We were um we were talking about our respective cars that we own because we were just shooting the shit and we were like, Oh yeah, this and this and this and this. We got we both got to the end of our list and we're like we're both like, I think I'm forgetting something. <laughs> He's like, I think it's a car from the nineties, because I always go through the cars in order based on when they were made, and I think I missed a nineties car and he was like, Oh, I have an NA Miata. And I was like, Oh, me too. That was the car that I also forgot. We both forgot that we had. Okay, so Miata is the always always the answer when the question is, which is which, your most forgettable car? We apparently, but we both. The, the, it was just amusing that that was the car he forgot, and then I had also forgotten That's the funny. same car. But he has like an R thirty two and a C five Z six Corvette. R thirty two Skyline or R thirty two Skyline GTR. Oh, nice. Yes, and an old Mustang from the sixties. Cool. You know, genuine petrol head. That's really shockingly. Cool. Oh, That's and really a K car. Cool. He had a K car of some kind. I think it was a cappuccino, if I remember correctly. It was not a beat. I think it was a cappuccino. Cool. Uh, and he drove it across the country. You want to talk uh, about oil abuse? 8,000 RPM across yes. the country. Yeah, we had exactly that conversation in the context of having driven your beat on the highway. I just drove it yesterday. 
my God, I limited myself to 6,500 RPM in fifth. I'm like, I just feel too bad for it. <laughs> that is so, I such an absurd statement to say that I, know. I limited myself to 6,500 RPM in top gear. That's like uh, the break-in instructions for the 991.2 GT3 are like, please do not exceed 7,000 RPM, right. which is higher than the red line of almost every, every car mm-hmm. that I've owned. And they're like, during the break-in period, don't exceed 7,000. Oh. Yeah. So, right. yes. Cool. Well, welcome back. I'm glad you uh, survived the peak and the bikes. And yeah. freezing. And I'm glad that the Mira survived its hangout with you. Or I mean, any hangout. They were like, Does you tr- is there anybody you trust to drive this car? And I was like, yeah, Jason. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you. I mean, yeah, that car has a lot of accommodations, personal accommodations. It's a, It's got a long list of you must know this before you drive this Correct. car. Correct. But I the mean, good thing st- is... Startup and shutdown procedure... That's all just trying to stop it from incinerating itself. But the reality is that car just drives. It's yes. Just, it's, once it's running, if you know where the fuel pump switches are and blah, 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 blah. Yes. I mean, it starts up ice cold, didn't care. Didn't yep. care. I turned it off cold and I was worried that it was going to flood. Mm-mm, didn't care. Yeah. Great. And uh, easy clutch. Mm-hmm. It doesn't carburate that well. You have to be very sensitive about how you apply throttle in that car. Um, steering is really light and easy. It's got it nice works. steering. Yeah. Just, you know, you're going to chop your fingers off on the louvers when you close the door if you're not holding them in the right spot. The car's going to light itself on fire with a gas fire and an electrical fire. Yes. And you can't find the lights. And even when you do turn them on, you can't see them. And then, yes. God and forbid, it had rained. I don't even know what I would have done. And, just, and the, the, yeah, the wiper sort of just liberated itself while we were using <laughs> it. <laughs> And, oh, also, it doesn't cover in front of you when you're driving. So in order to see through the area that is cleared by the wiper, you have to... But it's so... I took you the, need the fire extinguisher instructions also. That's an important part of the pre-flight is that, to make sure that the fire extinguisher is in its ready-to-use configuration. God. <laughs> Can you just fuel inject that thing, car, please? I just I think want, it would be pretty good. It would be pretty amazing. The other thing that I've always wanted to do is put PMOs on it because I've heard that PMOs, and certainly then when I've driven PMO, PMO started as Porsche mail order and they made like rebuild parts for Weber carburetors that Porsches use. And Porsches, when the early 911Ss would have the two banks of six cylinders and so they had two triple throat carburetors, uh, one for each bank. And they started making parts and then eventually sort of like improved parts for rebuilding those Webers. It'll be like early 911Ss and like 911Ts in the, from the late 60s and all that. And uh, eventually they like learned so much about Webers that they're like, I think we're going to make new castings and like sort of knew this and knew that. And they like are functionally Webers, but they're just really damn good. And they work almost like fuel injection. Every time I've driven a car with PMOs, I'm just like, my God, these are so good. And they're so much better than Weber's. Anyway, I think that's the hot setup for Amira if you want to preserve the carburetedness of it, is to buy two sets of PMOs. I think they are like five grand a pair. And you need two pairs for Amira oh because it's got God. twice as many cylinders. So it's just like ten or $12,000 of carburetors alone. And then you got to tune them. And then you have to tune them. Oh my God. So... But, but the, they, but I think that it would make the car just magnificent to drive. It's the price of one oil change. Uh, or one five-hour drive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, Mira ownership, but it's so pretty. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is very good at being looked at. I just It's tough for me to be objective about that car because I experience it so intimately. I've everyone's reactions when I walked over. I'm like, oh, this fucking car. I know, and they're all just beaming and delighted. I can't believe I'm seeing a mirror, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm entrusted with that. And I can't believe that I haven't died. (laughs) 
from my last outing in it. It's such a funny thing because I mean, of course, I'm excited to drive. And people love to ride in it. Oh yeah, because they're not they're, they're not responsible for it. They don't realize how close to death they are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they realize when they get in, they really you know the the engines the intakes are a quarter inch from their ears. They're like, yes. oh, this is kind of crazy, and then they don't realize that the gas pedal's behind you, and you have to break your hip and reach yes. around for the gas. It's, uh, yeah, trying to heel toe in that thing. I mean, you, I have injured myself. I'm sure. Like trying sure. to heel toe because the position of the gas pedal and like you're just trying to contort your joints in ways that they're not supposed to do. To yeah. So anyway. Oh, well, cool. All Everybody right. Everybody survived. Everybody survived. Everybody survived. Pike's Peak. Good. Um, it was okay. a cool experience. Would I recommend going as a spectator? Yes, you have to be aware of the fact that you're only going to see one or two corners of it because it's linear and you can't really move around once the road's closed and it's the only way up and down. And so it's kind of like a commitment because if you're halfway up the mountain right. and you can't come down until they're done running, like you're kind of stuck up there. And so Un- it's like... Unpopular opinion. I think almost all motorsports is better to watch. Yes, uh, yeah, because you get a full picture of it. You get commentary that can add context and color and all of that. And you get... A more complete understanding of what's happening, and so I mean, there's no substitute for the experience of hearing an F1 car. And, you know, yes, whole, whole, whole I mean, I think generally speaking, my favorite part of motorsport events is probably running around in the paddock, mm-hmm. uh, and you get to see the cars getting used and set up, and you get to watch the crews when they have to do to get them, and get to see them running around very purposefully. You know, when something goes wrong, heaven forbid, and you know, see how the drivers interact with them, and just get to intimately see what the vehicle is truly like up close because. On TV, it looks very perfect, yeah. and of course, there's a lot of, like, like the mirror. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that you have to do to sort of accommodate and prepare and all that stuff, and so it's cool to get to see that stuff, but in terms of actually seeing Once the competition, the starts, at yeah, TV. it's better to, and so that was one of the things on my list of uh, things to bring, is a, an old-fashioned radio, because then there's some frequency that they bro- broadcast the commentary yeah. on, and so if you're not in range of the PA, which invariably, if you're somewhere up the mountain, you're not going to be in range of that stuff, so you bring a radio up, and they'll broadcast the commentary and then you get to hear you know it's not it's like watching it on tv effectively right. uh via the mc so i radio long underwear hat hand warmers gloves yeah just mirror, you should bring the mirror there oh my god no mm-hmm. and, and the way that carburetors change at altitude forget it Oof. just forget it yeah. no way if you it would just breathe. be there be there would be just raw fuel Oh, also, I've never done this before. I did this last night. I turned the uh, car on. I, f- I filled it up with fuel and so much that the fuel brimmed in the neck. And so then it started overflowing. And I was like, oops, that was too much fuel. Uh, but I was like, I wonder what happens if I turn the car on with the cap off to the fuel level as it goes down. Because I, I did the math yesterday. The car got five and a half miles per gallon. Holy yes. shit. I drove it... Um, I drove it 40 miles and it used half a tank. Oh my God. And it's a 15-ish gallon tank. I did the math. Five, five six miles per gallon. Wow. Anyway, so I said, wonder what happens if I start it with the fuel level brimming and they all, I, I couldn't see it because I was in the car starting it, but they were all like, oh my God, the fuel level is going down in the course of turning the fuel pump on and then starting the car. The fuel level went <laughs> down like this much just <laughs> in the course of turning the fuel pump on and starting the car oh and idling it for 10 seconds oh in, the, in the neck. Yeah, you got 12 bowls to fill and just then, insane. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, so anyway... Uh, Not that gas is seven dollars a gallon here. Or anything. I know, God. That's in addition to the NA worth of servicing. Exactly. All right. Well. Well, I guess we'll see you next time. Yes. Um, at some point, we're recording an episode of this show that's not this show live at Radwood. 
Oh yes, that will have um, already happened by the time this goes live, because this episode should be live on the 11th, Monday, and on the 9th, two days, the day before yesterday, you will have missed a, a DWA uh, podcast, because we have agreed to, I don't know, shoot the shit with those guys, walk around, see what there is to see at Radwood in NorCal. Can't wait. Should be so, fun. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Until then, you have just listened or watched or experienced an in episode of the form. Carmudgeon Show. Uh, this one is the- like possibly... 59 maybe i think i don't know i, I was just gonna say we're part of the haggard podcast network but i'm not Ooh, supposed to be able look to say at that. It. you said it faultlessly mm-hmm. well done All and right. you are jason camisa and i'm derek tam scott no you're not derek tam hyphen scott yes there you are all right see you for episode 60 I don't approximately know. 60 I can count that high uh, <laughs>